Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome back to another glorious episode of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Koslick, and before we jump into today's episode, I've got a few announcements for you. First, we've got a great opportunity for you listeners here in the D.C. metro area to come and hang out with us in person next week, November 9th, 10th, and 11th of 2017 at the Emporium event at Union Market in Northeast D.C., We'll be sampling our product, answering all your cocktail-related questions, and everything will be on sale at a special discount. So be sure to purchase your Emporium tickets and prepare for that gastronomic Noshfest drink-a-palooza. And speaking of Emporium, we're actually using this event as a kickoff launch celebration of our new Bitters gift sets, just in time for the holidays. That's right, we've got our extremely popular Embitterment Organics line shrunk down into adorable 30ml bottles with all four flavors, aromatic, orange, lavender, and chocolate, lined up in a really excellent gift box, which is perfect for your travel needs, and it makes an awesome gift for all the cocktail lovers in your life. Be sure to stay tuned for more updates about our gift set, and in fact some other new products that will be rolling out in time for the holidays as well. But for now, we're going to turn our attention to the subject of today's episode, rum. It's an intriguing tropical spirit with a dark and sordid history, and I had the happy privilege of digging into all the weird and wonderful details with my friends Ben Lyon and Jamie Winden of the Lyon Distilling Company, makers of all things yummy and rummy. They've been good friends, role models, and supporters of mine for a few years now, and their rum is one of the great pleasures in my life. And so I think we should take this as an opportunity to make ourselves a drink before we dive in. Today's featured cocktail is a modern bar cart signature cocktail called the Tiki Tricycle. And this is something I developed when I was trying to take the complex, nuanced flavors of tiki drinks and eliminate some of the tricky steps and ingredients. So whereas most tiki drinks have a laundry list of ingredients, including multiple rums, juices, and syrups, this recipe only has four ingredients total. So you can kind of think of it like a tiki cocktail with training wheels. To make the tiki tricycle, all you need is two ounces of dark rum, a half ounce of hot by sly, our cinnamon chili syrup, a half ounce of lime juice, and a healthy dose of embitterment aromatic bitters. And the cinnamon chili syrup and, and the aromatic bitters lend a lot of complexity to the drink, while the lime juice melds with the syrup to give it that velvety, tangy texture that's the signature of so many wonderful tiki cocktails. So you shake that all up in a cocktail shaker with ice, and you enjoy it however you prefer, on the rocks, straight up, or even in a highball glass with ice. Delicious. That recipe is up on our website as well, so feel free to head on over to the recipe section if you need a refresher on the ingredients at any point. And now that you've got a delicious tiki tricycle in hand, we're going to pedal on back to my conversation with Jamie and Ben, where we discuss the differences between all those rum varieties you never knew existed, 
How Distillers Make Rum That Tastes Grassy, Funky, and Pretty Much Every Flavor in Between. The Surprising History of Rum in the United States and Abroad. Classic Rum Cocktails and Spinoffs You Should Try at Home. Why Bananas Belong in Dunder Pits. That's right, you heard me. And much, much more. Ben and Jamie are the people who first sparked my interest in rum as a premium sipping spirit and cocktail component, and I couldn't be more excited to share their knowledge and enthusiasm with you all. So without further ado, please enjoy this curious, slightly silly, and potentially overproof conversation with my friends, Jamie Winden and Ben Lyon. Jamie and Ben, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So today, obviously, we are going to be talking about rum. Um, but first, if you wouldn't mind, just introduce yourself uh, to our listeners and tell them kind of your background, anything you want them to know about who you are as a person before we get into the details of rum. All right. Well, my name is Ben Lyon of Lyon Distilling Company. Um, I have a, a fairly specific background in all this stuff that, that we're doing here at the distillery right now. I'm, I was a home brewer in college, very enthusiastic drinker early on. Um, and then went on to actually right out of college work for one of the first craft distilleries in the country. And that was how I got my start and sort of took all that knowledge I had from homebrewing and sort of learned that in distilling, you're sort of doing all the fun stuff that we love about making beer and then taking it one step further. And so that was how I got, how I got started. Um, and I've obviously gotten you know, deeply into kind of cocktail culture and all that good stuff, but I'm also a competitive sailor. So um, early on, was introduced to lots of interesting and weird rums that we weren't always getting distributed here in the U.S. So that was also one of the reasons why you know we um, you know we've been so passionate about rum and, and have sort of you know kind of gone into the deep end um, in producing it. So cool, yeah. Uh, my name is Jamie Winden. I am the co-founder of Lion Distilling, and opening a distillery was not my dream. It was Ben's. I enjoy drinking rum. I've been behind a bar for many years, started bartending uh, right out of high school, and have traveled all over to many rum-swilling countries from India to Africa to the Caribbean, places you wouldn't often expect, sugarcane spirits, but indeed, they're all over the globe. And I have fallen in love with making rum alongside Ben and our growing team, but I'm much more interested in handing someone a drink or a glass of rum and seeing their experience. And I'm all about people. So having a distillery here has been a wonderful way for me to connect with people on a totally different level, um, but using my experience in food and drink and hospitality. Um, yeah. Great. Well, that sounds like a really good set of backgrounds to obviously open a distillery and then have it be a fun place for people to come in and learn. And I've definitely seen it firsthand where people have, you know, I've been in your tasting room when people have come in and it's, it's a really cool experience, not only to see them taste your rum, but then to kind of like learn about the whole process. So you guys do a great job here. I definitely recommend that folks do come out to St. Michael's, Maryland. Uh, not only is it a beautiful town, but they have, uh, you know, a lot of stuff to do here as well. So the topic of this episode, as we discussed, was just to kind of get in a little bit deeper than we have been so far in the podcast into a specific spirit. We've done some kind of high level stuff uh, about different categories of spirits, maybe uh, kind of like liqueurs or vermouths, or, um, but, but I really want to take a very uh, deep dive into rum, what makes it special, and kind of what distinguishes it from other spirits out there. So could you give us 
maybe a formal definition of rum and then kind of like a functional one if there's different definitions out there that, that might be helpful to people? Well, I mean, formally, rum is made from any derivative of the sugar cane. So it can be cane juice, cane sugar, or the most traditional molasses. Um, we have sort of a more modern kind of scandal in the rum world, which is uh, the making of rum from sorghum molasses. And so technically, sorghum is both a grass and, a, and thus then in turn a grain. Um, and the TTB has allowed a few quote-unquote sorghum rums to come onto the market, which those of us who take a more sort of traditional tack in our production don't really love. But anyway, but it's, it's sugarcane based. Okay. And is there any, so as long as it's sugar, it's rum. Exactly. And that's one of the fun things. I mean, rum has this one rule, whereas many other spirits, as you know, have multiple rules. So as long as you're using a sugar from sugarcane, be it the three Ben mentioned or a hybrid, you can distill it in any manner you like. You can distill it on a pot still or a column still. You can age it or not age it. You can flavor it or not. You can spice you can do so many things. So Ben is famous for saying a line that I repeat daily to our customers, pull 50 rums off the shelf and they can all be wildly different. And I think for us, that's one of the most exciting things about making rum um, and a real interesting way to take one of the world's oldest spirits and make it new again and make it distinctly American um, in, our own, in our own way. And I think one of the things that we tried to do early on was you know, obviously embrace what it means to be a craft or artisan or, you know, distillery of that, you know, we sort of hesitate to use those terms, but, but what is it that we can bring to this spirit? So early on, we settled on a hybrid recipe of half cane sugar, um, half molasses, sort of combining the elements of all these, you know, of all the different types of rum into one. And so sort of making the spirit a little bit more modern take in that sense. But then we use pot stills. We do a very traditional double distillation. Um, sort of harkens back to the really classic heavy Jamaican rums and, and sort of really classic rums of the Caribbean where they were made using old European pot stills. Um, and so sort of taking those techniques and then introducing a modern recipe. And that's sort of our, our little hybrid and, and kind of where we've gone with it. Gotcha. So a lot of variability, um, a lot of different styles. I have one quick random deep dive question is if... Rum is anything made with sugarcane. Where does cachaça fall into that? Cachaça is kind of like the most um, deeply defined, right? It's, it's the right. most, most strict of rum. So it's, it's kind of a high level. So it has to be made from that fresh pressed cane juice. And the fermentation must start within 24 hours. Is that correct? Correct. So that's where you have your strict rum. Everything else is a bit loose. And so if we chose to make it from raw sugarcane juice, we still couldn't make cachaça because there's no way probably we could get that sugarcane juice here to Maryland from Louisiana within 24 hours. And I believe, does cachaça also have to be made in Brazil? Yes. Is, so it has so a, then there's the geographic designation. Yes, exactly. Too. So it's, it's double. Yeah. Right. So just so, so people are aware, cachaça, a Brazilian kind of staple, it's their take on white rum. It's kind of like a, some people call it their, their version of moonshine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the classic cocktail made using cachaça is the caipirinha, which is very popular. It's kind of a... Uh, almost like a old, or not an old timey, but a g- kind of a grittier version of the mojito. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's kind of cool. So, so cachaça falls into rum agricole. 
So when people see a bottle of rum and it's spelled R-H-U-M and it's rum agricole, that distinguishes that it's made from sugarcane juice. And then if it's made in Brazil, then it's a Brazilian rum agricole, henceforth, cachaça. Right. And that's something that I think we should get into here uh, as we're defining rum, because uh, rum obviously has a very colonial heritage. Uh, Ben was just talking about how uh, it was first made using these European pot stills that were literally put on a boat, I'm guessing, and dropped into the West Indies. And there are two primary strains of rum, from what I understand. I could be wrong. Uh, One is the British version, and then there's the French version that Jamie was just talking about, the agricole, spelled R-H-U-M. So what are the defining characteristics of those? What sets an agricole apart from a British style? Um, The agricoles you find give you this really raw, grassy, funky note. I think one of my favorite characteristics of a lot of well-made agricoles is that you will smell this agricole in the glass. And you'd almost swear it was olive juice. But then you taste it and you get this beautiful, raw, grassy cane note. And you get that inherent kind of sweetness and you can really get a sense of what it was made from. But the nose deceives you. Um, And that's what's sort of exciting and and technical and challenging about that spirit. Uh, Your classic molasses-based rums are basically get their characteristic from the fact that they have lots of, you know, cane oils and proteins and everything, you know, concentrated in your fermented base because molasses is the waste product of sugar refinement. So basically after we've processed our perfect white table sugar or our turbinado or whatever it is, the molasses is that funky, heavy stuff that's left over afterwards. So you, you get a very distinct characteristic with it and it's the one that obviously was most popular because you know why use all your fresh cane juice that you can make into sugar when you can take industrial waste and then turn it into booze and sort of the ultimate value add there. So. Gotcha. So the agricole is the cane juice and then the British style. Is there another name for the British style? No, no. it's just, it's rum. And so that's, that's the heavily molasses based. Correct. And just to bring things back full circle here. So what Lion is doing, if, if I'm, I'm right, is you're kind of taking some of the characteristics of both of those. You're taking the, the, um, the, the sugar, which is kind of closest, the closest you can get here to the cane juice in terms of purity and grassiness or any of those light notes. Right. And then you're also kind of incorporating the, the dark uh, molasses notes as well. Um, and it was, and the idea there was, you know, by using the turbinado, you're getting some of the same type of organic elements that you get from rum agricole, but you're not freaking people out because it smells like olive juice. Well, so. And that's also <laughs> one thing I did not know until we started experimenting with all these different types of sugar is how many different variations of sugar there are. And so yeah. when we explain it to our, our customers and the people who visit us, you know, the closest thing most consumers know is, is sugar in the raw. But sugar in the raw is so much cleaner than the sugar we get. What we get is the first press of the sugar cane that's evaporated the first time into sugar. And it's this raw, it's almost like damp sand. Um, it has cane juice rocks in it, you know, still. And it's, so it's really not processed for consumption. That is the sugar that's sent to the refinery to be turned into white sugar. And then, of course, brown sugar, which I didn't realize, is just white sugar with molasses added back to it. So what we're going for is we're going for that raw, sticky, damp, unrefined sugar so that it has the cane juice still present, an element of it, if you will, um, and combining that with the molasses that was left over. So the only thing we're not using is the raw juice that was pressed out but we kind of get the first two runs from the same sugar mill which is um really nice 
That's really interesting. One of the things I definitely wanted to talk about um, is one of the, from, from an outside perspective, one of the sort of disadvantages, I think, of using something like sugar, although what you were just saying kind of hints at that this might not be such a big disadvantage after all, is when you're using grains like rye, for example, or um, malted barley or something like that, you have the opportunity um, for something, I guess what we would call it would be terroir, mm-hmm. um, where the, the grains and where you get them and how they're treated, and this is especially the case with fruit and grapes, sure. um, really affects the end nature of the spirit. Um, but with sugar, it doesn't seem like there's that much of an opportunity. So you, what you're saying, Jamie, just to, just to make sure I have this right, is that the different types of sugar and your decision about which type of sugar and, and how refined it is, is gonna affect the the flavor in the end product. Absolutely, and I think what Ben was talking about with agricole, rum agricole is the one spirit that absolutely has a sense of terroir. Um, and, and you get that sense, you know, and terroir being the earth, the, the flavor of the environment. And of course in distillation, it's a lot harder to sense terroir than it is in wine or beer because we are actually evaporating and recondensing in the way we do it, we do it at least twice. Um, so you do get a lot of character because of the stills we choose to use. You know, the columns on our pot stills are the shortest I've seen ever in my entire life to visiting multiple distillers, which, which really captures a lot of flavor in, in that distillate vapor. But yes, absolutely, we are able to incorporate a bit of that by using that specific strain of sugar. So why not get creative with your rum mash bill? And I think people are more and more now. I look to fellow rum distillers and I see them using you know, two types of sugar, three types of sugar, four types of sugar. But when Ben came up with this idea a couple of years ago, I had never seen anyone use a hybrid. It was either or. Um, and so I think that's another interesting thing that craft distillers are bringing to the rum category is, all right, let's start with the basics. Because we all think about rum as after the fact. There's not a ton of appreciation and um, delving into, ooh, the nuances of white rum. There's more now, and especially among our rum nerdy friends, we do. But for the most part, the variations in rum come after the fact, after the barrel, after the flavoring, after the spicing. But if you can really start at the beginning and treat your rum mash bill with care, you're gonna get a more interesting white spirit and therefore um, more interesting product overall. Right, and mash bills, uh, literally the last episode that that I recorded and and published is we, we kind of dove into the effects of the mash bill. So that's really cool to um, hear from a, a rum distiller. Uh, what does your mash look like? It, it, it doesn't probably look like a traditional whiskey mash, right? Well, I mean, for rum, it's, you know, you're dissolving sugar and molasses in water. So it's, you know, it's this dark, sticky, kind of uh, molasses sugary, you know, sort of mixture. Looks like a porter. Um, yeah, it looks like a porter. It bubbles like crazy. Once the fermentation gets going, I call it the booze jacuzzi. It looks like a roofing yeah. float at the top. And I think uh, and the yeah. best way to, <laughs> to think about it is our first step is that we're literally making molasses beer. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what we're doing. Yeah. Um, and that's it. You make a white rum, like the, the products that you started off with. You started off with a white rum and a dark rum. Mm-hmm. What's different in the process between those two, um, th- those two products? So white rum is just your raw spirit, except if you go to Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico is the one place that has a weird designation for white rum, and that is that it has to be aged for one year 
before you can call a spirit rum. And so for Puerto Ricans to make white rum, they literally have to put the rum in a barrel, set it aside for a year, and then they charcoal filter it back to white. That process doesn't exist anywhere else. It's only in Puerto Rico. Um, and to, so to cut in, this yeah. is where you're going to see that rum gets very tricky. Right. Rum is a tricky spirit. <laughs> so just because usually we tell people if it's clear, it's a raw spirit. It's, it's a right. moonshine, whether it's a a vodka, a what clear gin, a clear rum, that is your raw spirit. That is your new make. You're unadultered, straight off the still, cut with water, but not yeah. the case in Puerto Rican rum. So sorry, Right, and that's, and that's the only one. And then beyond that, uh, rums classically get their color and flavor from either barrel aging or the addition of caramel or spice elements. And so the one other little technical thing is that you can add up to 2.5% by volume of caramel to rum without stating it on a label or getting any kind of formula approval for it. And that is really derived from the fact that we all got really used to in our aged rums that were, you know, whether they're being imported from the Caribbean or being made here, they had this characteristic. And it wasn't just from barrel aging. It was from the addition of these flavoring elements. And so we really got really used to our aged rums having a little bit of caramel in there. We associated that with a with a really good black or dark or aged rum. And in fact, that doesn't exist naturally at all. Um, but it is one of those characteristics. So, you know, you either have your white rum or you have, you know, rums that get their color and flavor from either the additional flavoring elements or the barrels or both. And then to clarify on what Ben just mentioned, that you can add um, the small percentage of caramel. It's not just caramel. It's of the original ingredients you use to make the rum, correct? So that's where you can have traditional black rums with a little molasses added back to them or in this case, modified yeah, sugar. Yeah. Um, and, and that was one thing that I thought was really interesting that Ben brought to the table, having also a bit of a culinary background and saying, you know what, why don't I make this caramel from scratch? Although many rum distillers will add caramel or caramel flavoring or things like that to the rum, um, which to us just goes against everything we do because the only things that end up in our bottle are made from raw ingredients. Uh, we don't import any flavoring or extracts or anything like that. So he said, why don't I try my hand at making the caramel that I used to make in the kitchen on a grand scale? Uh, and that really was was yeah. pretty innovative, um, especially if you look at the caramel burns on his hands uh, after 198 batches in the last four years. But I think that's a really wonderful way that we were able to distinguish our white rum and dark rum immediately with so much rich flavor, but without you know fakery, without adding vanilla and caramel and things like that. Like I make a big deal of saying the caramel is made by hand because it's a totally different flavor mm -hmm. and yes so the difference is that the white rum is every that's what we make all day long every day we make white rum and then we decide if that's going to be proofed down with water to become in the bottle white rum or if it's going to go in a barrel or have caramel added things like that Cool. Um, and caramel, just to clarify, is you're literally just putting the sugar that you use to make the rum into a pot, a large mm -hmm. pot, I imagine at this point, and you stir that around and let it brown, get close to burning. Exactly. And then it's just a matter of making sure it doesn't burn. All that the is where the, that <laughs> is where the skill lies, and the and the technique is is. We've known each other for a few years now, and uh, I'm really grateful for the role that you've played in my evolution as uh, somebody who appreciates spirits, who understands the process. Um, I have sort of an ancillary role in the spirits world and that we make mixers 
Um, but obviously I couldn't exist and do what I'm doing without, uh, without you all. And one of the things we've done for the past two years is we've taken a trip down to Tales of the Cocktail in New Orleans. And this past summer was exciting because you got to go see your sugar production for the first time. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, it was, it was great. It was, it was off season, so it wasn't the best time, but we are all, like I told you, I'm all about people. And so our company really, as it grows, is all about people and the people that we choose to do business with. And I'll be the first to tell you that not everything we source is local and not everything we source is organic, but we only deal with good people whose business philosophies line up with ours. And so it took us a while to find the right sugar partner. We were small. If you back up four years, we were buying five gallon buckets of molasses, turning it into 25 bottles of rum, selling that rum and buying more molasses. We were very, very small. So we went through a couple of different sugar providers and we ended up with Lula Westfield, which is down in Bella Rose, Louisiana, about 50 miles south of Baton Rouge, about an hour west of New Orleans. And we have been using them now for the last couple of years. And so they ship us both the molasses and the sugar cane. So I got to go visit them on a rainy summer afternoon and see their area, their plant. I got to see molasses with our name on it that was ready to be shipped out because we get a shipment about every two to three weeks now. Um, up now to about 30,000 pounds of sugar a month or so we're going through, which is crazy. But more exciting, the entire team, we are taking um, all seven of our full-time staff down to New Orleans in two weeks, and we are going to be there for the harvest. So we are going to spend four days cutting sugarcane, grinding it into sugarcane juice, and watching the process of turning it into molasses, the very molasses we'll be using over the next year. So what I've learned is that sugarcane is an immature crop in the United States. That is, it cannot grow for its full cycle. So what happens is, even though we think about how hot Louisiana is, especially for those of us that visit in the summertime, they do get a freeze. And so they have to make this decision of when to start cutting in order to cut all of the sugarcane for the year before it freezes. So they start around late um, October, like they've started now, and they'll cut and process 24 hours a day around the clock until the first freeze. Because if they wait too long, they're in trouble. And then they'll have everything done and ready and they'll continue to process. They basically set up the entire structures every year, break them down, clean them and set them up again. So That's it's crazy. wild. So we're gonna, we're gonna zip into the, the heyday and we're gonna know a lot more as a team when right. come back. So we're really excited. And that's something I've never done. So it's no, going to be very interesting. Yeah, yeah everyone's excited. Uh, cool. Well, so one of the other things that we did this past summer is we actually met a couple of other rum distillers down in Louisiana and they gave us a little tour. And while I was at this point, I mean, I thought I, I thought I pretty much had it down. I thought I, like, I knew my shit. Um, but we got there and then you guys started talking about this thing called Dunder. Yes. <laughs> and it seemed a little sketchy to me. And so I figured instead of trying to do my own research and botching it up, I figured I'd let an, a Dunder expert talk to our listeners about the role of Dunder. Because if I hadn't heard about it until this past summer, I imagine that most of our listeners have never heard of it. Right. So let's hear it. So Dunder is a really traditional, uh, mostly Jamaican addition to the rum. The origins of it are not tremendously well known. The, the only thing that we really do know is that lots of Caribbean distillers did it. Um, and the idea was you took some of your 
So we do two distillations in the stills, but basically after you do a distillation, you've got your, your rum wash or your mash or whatever you want to call it, um, that you've evaporated all the alcohol out of. You will take a portion of that and you will then either include that in each subsequent distillation or you'll take some of that and you'll put it into your new fermentations. The idea being you're getting more of that funky, raw, organic material, the molasses oils, the proteins. Um, and then the biggest thing, the esters, um, which then go on to, you know, basically end up in the subsequent distillations and create depth and complexity and character in your rums. And then beyond that, when you age the rum, you've got these esters binding to the carboxylic acids in the woods and you're, you're, you're getting all kinds of fabulous, complex flavors and, and character. So, um, the dunder pits though are the dunder sort of, pits and though. so yeah right so <laughs> so we have dunder and then you get to the reality of these things which were the dunder pits so they were literally uh, these stone pits in the ground and there are legends about you know dead goat heads being thrown in um, lots of nasty stuff being chucked in there um, but the idea was you had this pit that was sort of kind of rotting but because of the acidity. So molasses is really acidic. So because of the acidity, you weren't getting bad bacteria in there. You weren't getting um, bad yeast strains in the dunder pit. So while it might have smelled terrible, it wasn't toxic. And so you basically had a secondary fermentation going in there to the point where you only had to take a few little ladles full in, you know, kind of a multi-hundred gallon fermentation to introduce some really heavy esters. And so there's there's actually one distillery that exists still in Jamaica right now, and they make the highest ester rum in the world. And this isn't, and because they're specifically using a, a you know, type of dunder that they have, but the ester content is so high, you don't want to drink it. And it's really only used for rum extract and perfumes of all things, not a beverage rum because the ester content is too high. So it's one of these things where you sort of get into in distillation, you know, sometimes less is more. Um, definitely the case with, your, your esters and your, and your dunder. Um, but basically it's just this nasty pit of rotting, you know, sometimes they would throw fruit in there. Um, modern distillers have tried to replicate some of these things by throwing banana peels in because bananas are the only pre-esterified fruit. Um, and so there are lots of ways you can sort of modify this process and, and sort of, uh, recreate it. But, but that's the idea is esters are sort of, um, what you are desiring to get out of your dunder pit, but they're these nasty rotting pits of spent wash. Which is the reason I always yeah. said no to dunder. Right. Ben was like, we're going to dig a pit. And I was like, I don't <laughs> think that landlords will like that. And, yeah. you know, we're not on a Jamaican island with a lot of property. We right. have uh, neighbors all alongside of our building. We're in a, we're in a neighborhood. Um, but one of our first employees uh, asked Ben if he could start a dunder pit. And we did one in, in a, a bucket. 50, in a bucket. It was a bucket. But didn't we have a 50-gallon drum yeah, at one we point? Did. And it was... All we there were no goat heads for the record. Right. Absolutely zero goats were harmed in making this dunder pit. It was a lot of banana peels, a lot right. of fruit. We had um, a lot of bananas. We, we had a lot of bananas. <laughs> to get those banana peels. But I don't feel like we noticed any distinct difference yeah. in improving the character of our rum. We really like right. our rum. And sidebar, all of our rums, even four years later, are very young. We don't right. have anything in the rum bottle that's even close to a year old. That's just not what we're aiming to do because yeah. there are so many, it's not because we don't like aged rum, there's phenomenal aged drums, but we're always kind of going against the tide. So we're trying to perfect new young American rum and change people's mind 
with some different techniques. And so we haven't had time for it to say, maybe yeah. develop, if, if you will. But we, we did experiment with it. And I think the other thing that we started to realize, too, is that a lot of these old Caribbean rums were heavily flavored in this way because the distillation method wasn't very sophisticated. I mean, the rum was still really rough stuff. And so it might have this great flavor, but it's going to peel the paint off the wall. And I think what we've evolved to, to do in terms of our production is just really create better rum through, you know, thoughtful consideration of our ingredients, but then ultimately really careful, high quality distillation methods. And that has been the evolution of the thing. And and unfortunately, no dunder pits at the store. So. <laughs> but that's also what I'm most <laughs> proud of. And that's why I love the opportunity to do a rum tasting. I will be the first to say our white rum is not our number one seller, but our white rum is every other rum we have as well. So I have people taste the white rum. They are always pleasantly surprised that it doesn't peel the paint off the walls, that it's not like that rough Jamaican rum that they try that was white that really wasn't meant to be drank. Right. Just like the unaged corn whiskeys in Kentucky that become beautiful bourbons in a matter of a few short years are not really meant to be enjoyed raw. Our white rum can be. It's very good. It's very flavorful. It's very clean. So even if that's not someone's favorite, the reason the dark rum is as good as it is, the reason the Sailor's Reserve is so nice after just a few months in a barrel is because you had that really good raw distillate. So I encourage people to, with these newer distilleries, not just ours, Try the white rum. You, you might not decide to, to buy that bottle or sip on it, but knowing where it started is why you it gives you more appreciation for the final, you know, barrel finished version, et cetera. They're not different rums. People make the confusion coming in here. Oh, the white rum. Okay. I taste the grassiness. I taste the brightness. Oh, but the dark rum. Oh, this one was made with molasses, right? And it's like, no, no, no. It's the exact same base recipe. It's then what you're doing after distillation to give it color and more flavor, more interest. Um, but I don't necessarily think one is better than the other. It's just, it's just what your preference is. And yeah. No dunder. No, no, no dunder. Unfortunately. <laughs> but Andrew and Patrick are using dunder yes. at Roulezan in, um, in New Orleans and very different style Having rum. And it's awesome. Good results. I think. Very good yeah, results. Absolutely. I think that that point that, that you both just emphasized in your own ways is one of the things that I always try to hammer home when people, uh, ask about, um, you know, what bitters are. Uh, people say, you know, we, I think it's really useful to be able to situate ourselves in historical context if we need to, if, if we're going to communicate what we're doing today. Um, and I think, you know, the thing that I always tell people is that when these cocktails were invented with the use of cocktail bitters, the stuff that was coming out of the stills was in many, in many cases just super terrible. Right. And then when you throw in uh, prohibition, you have the fact that people were watering down and mm -hmm. adding all sorts, not just not just caramel or vanilla flavor additives, like some really weird flavor additives to the stuff. And so in a lot of cases, when I talk about bitters, I talk about it as a way to kind of add depth and, and nuance where there was none. Exactly. Um, and I think that today's distilling technology and, and the advances that we've made um, in, in a bunch of different arenas uh, allow us to make stuff that is sippable today that would never have been sippable in an age where cocktails... Uh, really came of their own. And so when we talk about cocktails today and having everything elevated to the level of craft such as it is, I think it's just a different conversation. You can still make a great rum cocktail using uh, you know, the traditional ingredients. It's just gonna taste way different today than it did back in the day. 
And unfortunately, we don't have a flavor. There's no way that we can communicate flavor across time in that way unless we come across, you know, somehow these ancient white rum bottles that people were making the first mojitos with or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's still a useful conversation to have because it teaches people, you know, what's valuable today and the fact that it's valuable because we come from this tradition. So what I was hoping to talk about, since rum, you can't really mention rum without pirates and rum runners and all these types of criminals and dunder pits are already suspect. So this right. is, it, rum definitely seems to be one of the most suspect spirits. So totally. um, there's a long and sordid history. It does. And rum makers <laughs> tend to be a little bit of scoundrels in the past, you know, adding so much to their spirit. And then, yeah, kind of it's, it's place in history yeah. due to prohibition, due to, I mean, even as far back as the 1500s when we had, you know, Ben always talks about what New London, Connecticut. Yeah, so New London, Connecticut, up until well, up until the late 1800s, was the rum capital of the world. And I tell people that they're like, "Wait a second, this like, you know, somewhat crappy industrial town in Connecticut made more rum than anywhere else in the world." Yeah, that's that's it's <laughs> a significant piece of rum's history, and it's not altogether glamorous and filled with you know sailing and pirates and you know swashbuckling and all that stuff. So. And the molasses um, triangle trade. Right, and the, and the trade of you know, and slaves for and... rum and molasses and all that stuff that um, is kind of an, an unfortunate byproduct of, of you know, the colonial era and, and a piece of how we got rum in the first place. But, but that's what it is. Um, yeah, I mean, rum was the first mm-hmm. spirit made in any large quantity exactly. in the States. Um, pretty much until importing molasses became too expensive and farmers right. got better at farming and therefore had excess grains and then you know whiskey took over and I think now people always default to bourbon as the American spirit or to just whiskey in general because it's something we can say hey this is grown here this is something we make from scratch but hey so is our sugarcane you know we're not getting Caribbean sugarcane we're getting sugarcane from Louisiana so we we like that history and and I think too also when we start to look at spirits more specifically you know where where are they from how are they made you know Talking about that word terroir, um, Maryland had you know a booming rye industry. You know rye whiskey was the big thing here, but it turns out most of the rye used in Maryland rye came from elsewhere. Um, you know the distillers in Kentucky didn't have enough local corn to make all their bourbon. It had to come from somewhere else. Um, you know, so you have all these spirits that you know essentially become what they are because of where they're made, not necessarily what exactly goes into them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of a really interesting thing too. And you know, that sort of makes you step away from you know, the actual technical side of the distilling and you get into sort of more of the you know, societal and anthropological um, background of all these spirits, but it's a really interesting thing. And rum covers more geography and kind of more more people than almost any other spirit in the mm-hmm. world. And I think that's kind of one of the really interesting things about it. We, we looked into, um, we're in Maryland on the Eastern Shore and we're in Tabba County. And so we tried to look through the historical society to find out any information about rum distilleries or rum production here. But unfortunately, most of that was wiped during Prohibition. So we know, but without hard authority, that rum was made in this area. But more interestingly to your question, uh, we know that rum was run up and down the Chesapeake. Uh, You have so many backwaters. I think Tabot County has more shoreline than any other county 
on the East Coast. I mean, it's crazy, mm-hmm. just all the little tributaries and rivers and, you know, we're here on the bay, but on, a, you know, the Miles River. So, Ben, I know you were just talked to someone about this, talking about the Watermen being the original runners. Oh, yeah, well, I mean, and that's the thing. I mean, they all, and it was a matter of simple economics, you know. It's, well, you can go fishing, or you can just drive your boat down to the mouth of the Chesapeake, pick up a couple barrels of rum, bring them up to Baltimore or Annapolis or further north, and make the same amount in a day as you would in a month. So a lot of these guys stopped fishing, and they started running rum. They also knew the waters, and... You know, you know where the shallow spots were, the geography, way better than the Coast Guard did. And on top of that, what I particularly like about Maryland's history is that the governor at the time refused to ratify any prohibition legislation. So Maryland was kind of the Wild West of, of booze. And so you did have this crazy, you know, rum running, uh, boozy, swashbuckling sort of, uh, you know, kind of heritage here. Um, and that's kind of cool. And I, you know, this summer I was, uh, in August, I was up in Newport and, you know, we're going around the Harbor and there's this old sort of slim, uh, wooden boat that was there in the Harbor. Um, and one of the captains was with said, Oh yeah. And that's, and that boat right there, the owners have, have kept it, you know, nicely restored, but that was one of the biggest rum running boats here in Newport, Rhode Island, you know? And so, um, it's cool. I mean, you have these little pieces of history that are, that are there, um, and it's just a fun thing to, to look back on. Yeah, for sure. So this is, after all, a home bartending podcast. So before we <laughs> jump into the uh, the lightning round questions here, I did want to talk about maybe some of the most notable rum cocktails uh, so that we can give our listeners some homework uh, and have them start practicing practicing up on their, on their rum technique and uh, hopefully going out and supporting their uh, local craft rum distillers in the process. So do you have any favorite rum cocktails? Absolutely. I think one of the best cocktails ever is the classic daiquiri. And that is my favorite rum cocktail. And that is simple. So for me, it's however much rum you want to use. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> use half as much lime juice and however much lime juice, use half as much sugar. And there you go. You just cut this in half. And I like it uh, chilled. Shaken uh, and up in a coupe glass. That's how mm. I enjoy drinking it. I feel like that's how I would serve it to Hemingway if he rolled into our distillery. And it was his favorite drink. It was his favorite drink. And there's all sorts of there's all sorts of variations on the daiquiri too, and that's why it's so fun. So for me, the classic is just a really good bold white rum like ours, or an Agricole, or something really clean and bright and robust, um, and then fresh lime juice and fresh sugar. Uh, but you can get crazy with that too. And so that's the fun thing is don't have white rum, have spice rum. Sure. Make a spice daiquiri. Want to do it on the rocks? Want to just whatever you do. It doesn't have to be pink and frozen like a slushy. Um, and so I think that the daiquiri is the most widely abused cocktail on some level, yeah. but also one of the simplest, cleanest and crowd pleasing, um, of all. So that's, that's my favorite. For sure. And can for the sugar, so that'd be basically be like a, a, a simple recipe taking your ratio would be two ounces of white rum, mm-hmm. one ounce of lime juice, and maybe a half ounce of like simple syrup. Yeah. And simple syrup, you know, can be equal parts sugar and water um, dissolved, you know, a little warm water or hot water. Or you can do some people do a two to one for mm-hmm. a really rich, simple syrup. Some people do a spiced simple syrup. Um, I've also gotten really crazy now liking the honey mix instead, equal mm-hmm. parts honey and water instead of sugar. And water. So, yeah, I, I would say the daiquiri is the ultimate 
competition. Like you could do a home bartending <laughs> and say, all right, we've all got different rums. We've all got different sugars and we've all got lime juice. And so let's, let's see what we can do. We should do there, there. We should do daiquiri competition. We should. Every day here is a daiquiri Every, competition. Yeah. Although actually, we recently had a fizz competition. We had a fizz off exactly. following uh, Tales of the Cocktail, where we made instead of just gin fizz, we thought we bring a rum fizz back <laughs> exactly. or into or something, and we made and a rum it's fizz really with. Good. We made it with coffee rum. We made it with curacao. We made it with white rum. It was amazing. Oh, more my fizz, goodness. more better. Yeah. The other thing I like is, and something that I just casually ended up encountering was, especially among bartenders in D.C. The quote-unquote snackery is a thing where you know they just want to make a quick drink for each other and they just throw together a quick daiquiri. I was at, at an event and um, one of the bartenders said, "Oh, you know, what are you gonna do with this white rum?" And I said, well, you know, "I'm happy to give you some." And he said, "Come with me." So we went over to one of the other booths and and he was like, "We're gonna, you know, this is a great DC bartending tradition." There was a guy standing there. He's like, and the guy was like, well, "What's that?" He's like, "Well, we're gonna have snackeries." And so he us a little daiquiri. It's like a shot of daiquiri. Down, basically, yeah, like a two ounce of two ounce daiquiri and down the hatch, and that was it. The snackery. So yeah. that's amazing. Yeah, and, the other, this is a thing. I guess I don't know. The other thing I try to encourage uh, people to do all the time, which is just me being a bossy rum person, is take pretty much any cocktail ever and substitute rum in it. So yeah. take white rum, substitute it for tequila, and do rum margaritas. Ben likes to sub um, rum for brandy and do rum sidecars. Uh, yeah. We love our rum old fashions, using rum, like a dark rum instead of whiskey. So I think rum is so versatile. You cannot go wrong. You should never say, I have a bottle of rum and I don't know what to do with it. Like, yeah. that's just not acceptable. There's so many simple drinks you can make with rum. The other thing I like about rum from a, from a cocktail standpoint, I think we, you know, we also have to remember that rum is just kind of um, an inherently more balanced spirit than your whiskeys and, and other things. I mean, whiskeys are often created in a way to be specifically unbalanced. You know, you have to only use them in specific ways, otherwise it just doesn't work. And rum is something that, uh, that's one of the most beautiful characteristics of it, is that it's just this wonderfully balanced spirit that does so well in so many things because of that. So, mm. It is very yeah. harmonious. The times when, when I make a rum cocktail where I have trouble with it is when I'm when it's, it almost plays too nicely with everything else, mm -hmm. where the, it, it's, it's almost hard to see the lines where the flavors are coming from. Mm -hmm. So like in a classic Negroni, you taste the gin, you taste the sweet vermouth, and you taste the Campari, and that's part of the joy of that. But sometimes, like if, if I were to add a rum to, I mean, rum Negronis are, are great. And They're my favorite. That was, <laughs> <laughs> I was on a campaign for that last year, but yeah. we used our overproof rum. So we made sure we used 126 proof, really punchy, really bold rum so that it did stand out. For sure. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's really that's really cool. And one actually uh, one of the first cocktails I ever invented, actually probably the you know, first or second cocktail I ever invented, not super super inventive, um, but rum is a very as as Ben was mentioning, it's very New England spirit. Um, and I basically just made a rum old fashioned using your dark rum, uh, and then in with the uh, sugar cube, I muddled in some rosemary, mm -hmm. and so Ooh. it had that really fresh piney scent to it. So it was a rum old fashioned with rosemary. I remember this. Yeah, and I called it the Stopping by Woods. Yes. After the, the after Robert, Robert Frost, Frost I, you did a blog about it. I think. Yes, yes <laughs> I remember this. Back in the day when blogs were were uh, good good for getting the word out about anything, but. Um, yeah, it was it was really cool. Uh, so again, it just uh, play around with it. Use rum, swap out rum in something that you would normally make. Uh, unfortunately, 
a lot of rum recipes are tiki recipes, and those are very complex. Uh, they're delicious, but they're uh, a fairly high barrier to entry. Mm -hmm. So we're definitely going to have a tiki episode, maybe perhaps multiple tiki episodes, to kind of break down some of the ingredients and the processes that can make that easier for you as a home bartender. Um, but I think uh, good advice starting out is to just kind of start swapping rum in for other stuff and, and taste it on its own too. Exactly. And the only caveat would be that if you're talking about coconut rum or spiced rum, all bets are off um, right. because we will encourage people to do a dark rum mojito, but I don't know about a spiced rum mojito mm -hmm. necessarily. So you do have to be familiar with the rum that's in your bottle and then be able to um, compensate for, right. for that. For sure. Cool. Well, rum aside, let's talk about Jamie and Ben now. Jump into the lightning round questions. These are quick questions. Your answers can be as quick as you want. Um, but we just want to uh, kind of put your answers next to the answers of everybody that's come before you. And <laughs> I think that's part of the fun of this format. So question one, what is your favorite cocktail? And if you don't have a favorite of all time, uh, what's something you've been more recently obsessed with? For me, it's a Negroni. I love every type. I love a Mezcal Negroni. I love a classic Negroni. I love a drink that's always going to delight me, but can always be different. I feel like the favorite spirit question is a little bit uh, obvious at this point. So, <laughs> acknowledging that you have a wide variety of rums, so you can say you can answer your rum, or you can go outside of line distilling. Uh, I'll present you with the desert island situation. If you had to take one bottle or a shipload of one all of one type of product uh, to a desert island that would have to sustain you for the rest of your life, what is that bottle? For me, it just changed a few months ago. I went down to Mexico and I had no interest in mezcal before this and I really wasn't that interested in tequila, but I got to visit a lot of mezcal makers and I love the nuances of it and I love the way it makes me feel because I feel like mezcal is a little bit of an upper. So I would take mezcal, yeah, and I think I'd never be bored. I've never heard of mezcal described as an upper, so now I'm gonna have to go and, and uh, experiment with that. Drink plenty. Uh, for me, rye whiskey. Cool. Any, any specific type of brand? Uh, Maryland rye. I mean, obviously, like my own, but um, yes, yeah. sir. Which is in way too short supply, so it would not <laughs> exactly. last you on a desert island. You're gonna have to yep. pick a friend's. <laughs> All right, our classic question here is: If you could uh, have a cocktail with anybody in history, past or present, uh, who would it be? What would you talk about? What cocktail would you drink? And where would you go? Oh gosh, this is a tough one. Uh, I guess I would choose. Um, I guess I would choose Shackleton because he was notorious for on his on his voyages bringing whiskey with him um, to the point where it was a huge burden on kind of their supply ch chain in the Arctic. So yeah, so give me Shackleton. And it, what's the full name? What's that? What's his full name? Uh, Edward Shackleton. Edward Shackleton. And was he a that. British guy or a U.S. guy? Uh, he was a Brit. Is gotcha. Brett and famous Arctic explorer. Arctic so, explorers yeah. are fascinating. They're kind of like the the last version. That was definitely like the last terrestrial frontier we had, and they are. I feel like the descendants of all the pirates, explorers, and rum runners. Like Sir sorry, Francis not Kennedy. Edward. It was Ernest Shackleton. Ernest, Ernest Shackleton. Shackleton. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Cool. Very cool. Um, are there any books about rum or distilling or cocktails that you find particularly useful that you would recommend to our listeners? Absolutely. I Right before we started the distillery, it took us about a year to get up and running, and we knew we wanted to make a couple of things. 
Uh, rum was on the list, but of course, Maryland Rye was probably the forerunner at the time. And I came across Wayne Curtis's and a bottle of rum. And I read it, and I devoured it, and I handed it to Ben, and I said, read this book, tell me what you think. And afterwards, we both said, we're starting with rum. Yeah. And it's funny because that book, too, my best friend, even a number of years before that, you know, he and I had sort of, we would dork out on rum and, you know, make rum cocktails and all this good stuff. And that was a book he had, but I hadn't read it. And then, you know, later ended up picking it up after Jamie introduced it to me. But, um, yeah, that's probably the best, the best one. Cool. Um, yeah. We will definitely link to and a bottle of rum in the show notes so folks can definitely find that, pick it up, and devour it as well. Uh, if you could give any piece of advice to somebody, and this is specifically knowing that they are just starting out their journey as a home bartender, so probably a little bit new to rum and all the other spirits and the processes, do you have any advice for them that would kind of enhance their journey as a home bartender? You know, a question I've been asking people lately when they come in here is I don't ask, I used to always ask people, what do you like to drink? And now I just ask people, what do you like? What do you like flavor-wise? Do you like spicy food? Do you love sweets? And so I think don't let, you know, drink, like the idea of it being a cocktail get in the way of remembering that it's a culinary experience. And I think we've also been able to work with a lot of chefs recently and seeing what they bring to the table because of food they have in the kitchen and flavors they like, that's what makes to me a really cool cocktail, you know? You've got squash and you love squash and you want to make a squash syrup and add that to rum? Why not? And a, yeah. a chef just did that and blew my mind. So I think uh, don't think within the confines of what's normally in a glass. Think about the things that you like to cook with and then play around with that in your cocktail. That's really, really cool advice. Ben, yeah. do you have any? I think, um, gosh, I don't know. I mean, I, to echo that, I think you know, a good starting point would be one of our, our favorite rum cocktails because everybody loves it but just rum and ginger beer mm -hmm. it's one of those things where people are like ginger beer i don't know what that is and as a, as a sailor i drink tons of these things you know and, and they've been around forever but they're like ginger beer i don't know about that and then adding rum to it and they drink it they're like this is the best thing i've ever had and the nice thing it kind of goes with everything so it, sometimes it's just the simple combinations of things like that but that's a really good i think for rum get some good ginger beer get a decent rum, mix them together, and you're probably going to be really happy. And then you can kind of go from there. And I would say one more postscript. Not all rum drinks should be sweet. Right. And I think looking for balance in your cocktail, we use a hot and spicy ginger beer to yeah. balance the sweetness of the rum. Habaneros with rum. Different mm -hmm. things because classically when we all think back to our first rum drink, it was probably pink and it was probably too sweet. And that keeps a lot of people out of the rum game for a long time. And so, um, yeah. Don't, don't go for sweetness, go for balance. Or, or my, my other favorite rum cocktail, and it's just a basic rum punch, it's just white grapefruit juice, rum, and then you grate a little fresh nutmeg on top. And it's really simple, really easy. It brings all these flavors together that you wouldn't logically <laughs> you know, conceive, um, and it's perfect that way. You know, the nutmeg brings out the molasses characteristic a little bit. The citrus just melds together with the rum in a really nice way. And because it's white grapefruit juice, it's not sweet. But if you want, you can add a little simple syrup to it to, you know, tune it up. But but it's a really simple, basic, kind of classic Caribbean rum punch recipe that um, that is easy to do. And you can get the ingredients at the grocery store. <laughs> Absolutely. Those are really good pieces of advice. Um, and it's interesting, too, because some of the advice that we've been getting is, like, a lot of people will say, 
um, you know, learn the, learn the basics, learn the classics. And, uh, you know, Jamie, what you said was like, basically like follow, follow your, your, your heart or your, your palate's heart. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a much more, uh, kind of, I think liberating type of advice than like, nope, sit down with, uh, Mr. Boston bartender's guide. (laughs) And when you're done, uh, you can join the rest of us uh, behind the bar. <laughs> yeah, if you hate cherries, if cherries always taste like medicine to you, don't try to make a Manhattan with cherry. You know, don't add a cherry. Just do something different that you like. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's not to say it's bad advice either, because I think you should know how to make it old fashioned. I yes. think you should be able to make the same old fashioned every night. Uh, but then, you know, there is there is uh, a certain type of training wheels aspect or a certain type of, uh, you know, uh, slightly cushioned aspect to that where we're cushioning ourselves from risk, but also from creativity. Mm-hmm. So I think as home bartenders, we need to figure out where we're, where our comfort zone is and be able to push it just a little bit, um, which is a term that uh, myself and uh, the guys from the Speaking Easy podcast kind of coined together called the zone of proximal drinking. <laughs> oh my God, that's great. <laughs> um, so quickly before we wrap up here, how can people get a hold of you digitally if they want to start a conversation with you, follow you on social, um, and then maybe find out about the hours of your in-person location so they can come and talk with you in person themselves. We are very available online. Um, <laughs> both, uh, well, Lion Distilling, uh, myself, Jamie Blonde Boozehound, and Ben Whiskey Patrol all have Instagrams, as well as um, my sister, Jessie, at Tiny Booze Cat. You can reach any or all of us anytime. Uh, we are famous for having the phone number of the distillery on every card, uh, and we call it the cocktail hotline. So if you have questions, you can text the distillery at any hour of the day. It goes to my cell phone, and I will answer your questions. I do it quite often, whether it's with our rum or something else. Um, and yeah, we're on, we're on Facebook yeah. and the internet, and we're open seven we days do, a week. And we we're do accommodate super... funny requests. I had a, a, we whole, do. <laughs> a whole contingent of people from Grenada who came to the distillery one day, there were these Caribbean people who just loved rum. And one of them said, so it's my, it's my mom's 65th birthday. Would you come to the party? Cause she would love it if a distiller showed up and brought rum. And I was like, I see what I can. Anyway, long story short, I showed up to the party and you know, made this, this old Caribbean ladies night. So, you know, yeah, so it was great. So sometimes yeah. we do weird stuff like that too. So yeah, <laughs> yes. so get in touch. We're, we're, <laughs> amazing. we're on all the handles. Very cool. Yeah, it's a really cool um, sort of loop of handles to follow. The, the tiny booze cat, blonde booze hound, whiskey patrol, uh, lion distilling. Because you get to see sailing pictures from Ben. You get to see whatever liquor store sl- uh, slash <laughs> restaurant Jesse is at with the rum. And then... Mine's just plants. Booze, yeah, <laughs> plants and cocktails. A lot of landscapes of yeah. the, the uh, St. Michael's. <laughs> Antiquey things. And t- yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Lion distillings uh, is the most legit. The only thing we're bad on, admittedly, is Twitter. I just can't. Twitter sucks. Yeah, it's yeah. someone once said it was like a a cocktail party where everyone's talking and no one's listening. And ever since, I wanted nothing to do with it. But if you do tweet me, I will tweet you back. Yeah. Yes. Eventually. Good deal. <laughs> Jamie and Ben, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. I know that you've got rum cooking in the back you got to yeah. get back to. And the uh, tasting room's about to open up. So let us clear out here and uh hopefully we will do a round two again at some point in the near future anytime sounds good cheers thanks <laughs> hey everybody thanks for listening i just want to remind you that this episode might be over 
but the journey and the discussion are just beginning. If you're excited about the content in this or any other episode, please tell us. Follow us on Instagram at Modern Bar Cart for recipes and great product tips, or stalk me personally at Quixologist. That's Q U I X Ologist. You can also like us on Facebook by searching Modern Bar Cart, or hit us up directly via email by sending a note to podcast at modernbarcart.com. That email address, by the way, is also the one that you should use if you've got any cocktail or home bartending related questions you'd like us to address, or if you think you have a unique perspective on the cocktail world and would like to be interviewed for all to hear. I'll see you next time, but until then, drink responsibly and experiment boldly.